0: Let us uh, turn now to Second Thessalonians chapter 1, and uh, as we do so, we're going to continue where we've been. And we come back to this important letter, a letter that we've looked at over the past month, a letter that is in continuity with the first letter, very much a similar letter, written by the same authors, this mission team, really written likely by Paul or his secretary, whoever was in that function, uh, written on behalf of this missionary team, Silas and Timothy, along with him, written to the same church at Thessalonica. Maybe some new members have come in. In fact, I think we can be certain of that, but it's the same church, the same city, the same environment, the same circumstances, the same subjects, largely, and written very close together. We mentioned the uniqueness of this letter in that it's written so close after the first letter to the Thessalonians. Maybe Uh, As short as a month, maybe three months, but very close together. And Paul is trying to help them to understand some things they've misunderstood in the first letter. uh, Some questions that they had. Now as we turn to verse 3, we mentioned that verses 3 through 10 are one sentence in the Greek. And that that makes it difficult to interpret, makes it difficult to translate. And so if you notice in your modern translations, it's broken up into several sentences. And that's important. But we want to make sure we look at this text, not overlook this text. We want to make sure we're careful with it and we think about all that Paul is saying in it. Because there are some things that it would be easy to skip over. In fact, often when these things are preached, they are skipped over. And so we don't want to do that. Paul says in this that he is bound or obligated to give thanksgiving to God on behalf of these believers. Why? Because it's fitting to do so. Whenever we have reason to give God thanksgiving, we ought or are obligated to give God thanksgiving. Thanksgiving should be the, at the center of our lives as believers. We should always be thankful. And Paul says, I've got many reasons to be thankful for you, brothers. Number one, your faith is growing. That is certainly something to thank God for. Second of all, he says, your love is abounding. That's something to be thankful for. Third, you become an example to the other churches of God in that you endure persecution by remaining faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, as I travel around, don't forget Paul says, even we boast of you. Paul says, as I travel around the churches of God, I say, stand firm like the Thessalonians. What a testimony to them that is, that the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Silas were mentioning the Thessalonians as an encouragement to the faith of other believers. And Paul says, as you go through those persecutions and tribulations, note this. And this is what we looked at last Sunday, verse 5. It's a complicated point that Paul makes here. He says, these persecutions are an evident token of a reality that would otherwise be hard to see. And that is the just judgment of God. The righteous judgment of God. In what way does Paul mean? Paul means there is going to be a great eschatological dividing one day. God's people shall be gathered to glory, and the people who are in Adam shall be gathered to eternal destruction. Now, my friends, that's what the Bible says. That's the reality. And Paul says that is shown to you in the current, in the now, the here and now, in persecution because people are dividing themselves up as to whether or not they stand for Christ or against Christ. They're revealing it to you. Now, my friends, Paul says, when you're in those situations, under persecution, let that be a reminder. Let that token remind you of an encouraging word, which is that those who are afflicted now shall be given rest at His coming. My friends, what he's saying is, hold on, endure recognize that there is a reward for the righteous people of God. But he also says that there's a reminder here that we need to think about, that they needed to think about, and one that often churches ignore today. That token also means there are people who are going to fall under the judgment of God, the wrath of God. They're going to fall under His punishment. And my friends, Paul doesn't hold back from showing us that. And so we need to look at it. People who are gathered, as Paul says, unto affliction, unto affliction in the day of judgment. Now primarily this is a message of encouragement, right? It's primarily, Paul's point to say this to the Thessalonians is, be encouraged. Yes, you're afflicted now for a time, but you shall be gathered unto glory and rest forevermore in the presence of God. And that is an encouragement and that is a great reward. But there's a warning here as well, isn't there? When asked why would they continue to witness to people who are persecuting them in the face of that persecution, what would be the reason? I must tell others about King Jesus. That they might enter into this kingdom while there's time. Because if they don't, then what Paul tells them here will be a reality for them. And that is they will fall under the terrible judgment of God. The wrath of God. Now, my friends, I want to read it one more time. I'm going to read the entire passage here, uh, 3 through 10, so we can hear it all as it comes together. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Now that's a long sentence, isn't it? I mean, if you really were to put it in the original Greek. And Paul says a lot there, and we've got to be careful not to skip over parts of it, as I've already said. So this morning, as we think about this section of this sentence, verses 6 through 9, we want to look at this serious warning, a warning that the church in Thessalonica was preaching and declaring to their, their own persecutors, and that I believe we are to hear, receive, and preach today, because it's in the Word of God. And as we do that, I want us to look at three points. First of all, a righteous recompense, a righteous recompense. Second of all, a vengeance taken. And third, an everlasting destruction. My friends, these are important biblical themes that we need to hear today. So we want to begin with the subject of God's righteous recompense. It's Paul's wording here. It's Paul's wording. In fact, each of these three points are the wording Paul gives us. Paul says that God will repay, He will recompense on that day of judgment. Now, one of the realities of modern preaching and the modern church is to de-emphasize these things. We know what You don't hear a lot about hell or judgment or wrath or sin, any of this today. I've gone back and checked. It's still in the Bible. It's still there. It's just we kind of avoid it today. We might ask ourselves why we do that. Well, it seems like it makes people uncomfortable. I think I've got news for you. That's the point. That's the point to make you uncomfortable, to make you recognize what the end is for the wicked, and to recognize that we want to be with Christ forevermore in glory. So if you think about how rare it is to hear about sin and judgment, and by the way, uh, the pastor of the largest church in America went on Larry King many years ago and said, well, we just don't believe in talking about sin or judgment at our church. My friends, it's doubtful you're a church. If you refuse to preach what the Bible preaches... And teaches, you're not a church. A church, the first sign of a church is that the Word of God is declared there. If the Word of God is not declared there, it's not a church. Whatever else it might be, it is not a church. Rarer yet is the wrath of God to be spoken about. But most rare of all today is the eternal and future state of the wicked. And my friends, it is often found in Scripture. It's been pointed out that Christ spoke more of hell than He did heaven. You find this over and over in the Scriptures. It is a thing that we need to hear, need to think about. We need to deal with it. We're looking at the enemies of God. Paul is speaking of the enemies of God. Those people have set their face against Christ, persecuting the church, persecuting the people of God. And what Paul says is there is a day in which they will be judged. A day in which they will be judged. They will be declared guilty. They will be put into the place of those who are at odds or at war against Christ, at enmity against Him. And of course, that is an eternal place of wrath. And so my friends, we need to hear what, what is being said here and not pass it over. As I said, it's a, a subject that makes many people nervous today. Just a couple of weeks ago, a video popped up on my YouTube feed. I, I kind of recognize the person as a minister I've heard about. I don't know his work. I mean, I know he's semi-popular, and it was on a question about hell, and I clicked on it. And the question was about people going to hell. He spent the first five minutes of the video hemming and hawing, and even saying such things as, this is a subject that I disagree with God on. Now that's what he said. Now he came around to say, God's right, I'm not. But he spent a lot of time on how he didn't feel this doctrine was just. How he thought it was a troubling one that made him uncomfortable, said in 50 years of ministry, he's preached hell three times. 50 years of ministry. You're going to find it a lot more in any one gospel than that. You almost have to be avoiding it to not preach on it more often than that. And so, my friends, we need to see that this is a problem. If the preachers and ministers of the church are nervous about hell, no question why our people rarely talk about it. The people in the pews don't hear anything about it. It makes them nervous to talk about But my friends, we don't apologize for what the Bible says. The Bible tells you that this is a reality. This is the end for all those outside of Christ. The Apostle Paul doesn't shy away from it. The Apostle Paul doesn't seem embarrassed by it. The Apostle Paul seems to want to tell people about it that they might recognize that it's a horrible place. A place of wrath and separation from God's presence and light. And that it ought to be avoided. So Paul's not in disagreement with God on this. He recognizes the wisdom and even the necessity of this doctrine. That there must be a righteous judgment against the enemies of God. My friends, to try to put this in a way that we can easily understand, to reject an idea of hell would be like saying, well, I don't think there should be a prison. I don't think there should be a punishment for rapists and murderers here on earth. There has to be a place that those who are outside of the righteous standing of Christ go. And in God's wisdom, it is a place called hell, a place of torment, a place of horror, a place of of great distress. My friends, the Bible tells us that again and again. It is a righteous reality. And this passage declares that God Himself is righteous and His judgment is righteous. So my friends, we don't have to wonder if you were there, you belong there. You deserved to go there. God's judgment is sure. It is righteous. And we need to recognize that reality. Now he declares that it's a righteous thing for God to repay. Now that literally in the Greek means to pay back. To give you back what you have coming to you. Paul is telling you this is a deserved punishment. But Paul also words that it's a place of much affliction. And that there is a justness to God repaying those who have afflicted others with affliction themselves. Now again, that would be no different than we would see in a human sense. That the person who has troubled or harmed other people themselves deserves a punishment for it. No different eschatologically. And so God is pointing this out to us. And Paul says that the parousia or the return, the coming of Christ, it shall be revealed as He is revealed from heaven in power and glory, so His judgment will be revealed. You can't see it easily in the present. And that's why Paul says there is given to you now an evident token. When you look at persecution, the lines of judgment are made clear. Those who are declaring themselves to be the people of God and those who are declaring themselves to be the enemies of God. Paul says take heart, you're on the right side. But remember the end of those who are on the other side. Now, there is a sense in which we celebrate. I mean, the prophets did, celebrated the Day of Judgment because there's a day when all will be made right. But we shouldn't forget on an individual level, people we know may be on the wrong side of that line. People we care about. People that we would hope would be in glory with Christ. By the way, that's what motivates our evangelism. That's what motivates our evangelism. We want to tell other people about Christ that they might be saved from the wrath to come. Paul not only had that motivation in his ministry, Paul said, I preached to you the entire truth that your blood might not be upon my head and hands. I don't think any minister loves getting up and talking about these things. But we recognize the reality that if we don't, we are accountable in some way because we didn't fulfill the duty we're called to. And so, my friends, we need to recognize Paul is talking about a day when those who are at rebellion against God, who deny Christ, who deny that He is the Son of God, who deny that He is the divine King, will one day be left without any question about it when Christ is revealed. We mentioned a moment ago, parousia, right? The return of Christ, the coming of Christ. The word that Paul uses here is the apocalypse of Christ. Now you might recognize that in terms of uh, revelation, right? At the Uh, the last book of your Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It literally means the uncovering, the revealing. When Christ is revealed in glory, there will be none who can deny His glory. All will confess who He is. I believe in some sense, there will be many who it it won't be a joy to confess that He is Lord, that He is Christ, but it will be evident to them that He is. And His judgment will be made clear to all, and for some it will be a day of incredible joy, the greatest joy imaginable, as we see our king approach. C.S. Lewis spoke about this, I think it was in Mere Christianity, where he talked about uh, the gospel almost being like the first coming of Christ, being a king, uh, coming into a land and saying, I'm coming back one day to recapture this land that is under occupation, and how the people of, of the king await that day, right? We look forward to it when he comes back and sets all things right. But we also recognize that what Paul is saying here is it's going to be a terrible day for many people. A terrible day where the truth is revealed, their rebellion is revealed, and they fall under the judgment of God. Those who have rebelled against him, those who have rioted against him in the streets of Thessalonica, we can go back to the book of Acts and see that. The rioters in the streets who have opposed the people of God, who have come at war against them, And so this brings us to our second point this morning, a vengeance taken. Paul says in verse 8 that at the return of our king, he will take vengeance against the wicked. Vengeance against the wicked. It's not a mild or tame word, is it? Vengeance. Of course, that's not a new word if you read the Bible. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He is a God of wrath and vengeance. If you look at it again, he says that Uh, this wicked are described in a certain way if you look at the text you'll see what paul says he says those who neither knew god nor obeyed the gospel it's interesting many scholars as they come to this try to divide up who paul's talking about here they say well those who never knew god are the gentiles and those who did not obey the gospel are the jews those outside of christ right the the non-obedient the uh those that are not standing in faith But actually that doesn't seem right because Jesus goes at length to say in the Gospel of John that Jews who do not trust in Him, who do not receive Him, who do not recognize Him, didn't know the Father either. It's not just Gentiles, of course. The Gentiles, the pagans didn't know God. But Jesus says, if you don't receive Me, you never knew My Father. For if you recognize Him, if you knew Him, you would recognize Me. So I don't think you can make that distinction. And all those outside of Christ are disobedient to the gospel. And so, my friends, I think Paul's just using two phrases to describe the same people. You may remember last week we tried to make the point that he's dividing all of mankind into two eschatological camps, two end times camps, those that are redeemed, those that are the people of God, those who shall find rest, and those who shall find affliction. I think he's just using two terms here to describe the same people, those people who do not know God. They do not know God. And those people who will not obey the gospel. Now, it's not arbitrary. There's no innocence to this not knowing God. You may remember, a long time ago, Anthony, you'll remember, you were here, I think, the day we even talked about this years ago, about Romans 1 and those who, although they knew God, would not give Him glory, nor were they thankful. Paul says those people suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Notice what Paul's saying. It's not that they didn't know God exists. It's not that they didn't on some level recognize that there is a God who created all of this. I mean, just logic tells us that. But he says these are people who suppress that truth in unrighteousness. So not a righteous cause here, an unrighteous cause. And the, the word in the Greek is like trying to stuff a blanket or something into a trunk. And you know, you're having to really fight, maybe uh, packing luggage for a trip you've been in this situation. You're trying to get maybe one or two more shirts in than are going to fit. So you're having to really put your weight down on it. That's the, really the word in Greek. People who are struggling to deny God's glory, deny Him glory, to not recognize Him. People who have to basically turn their face away from recognizing His evident glory. Recognizing that a God exists. And Paul says it's not innocent, it's done in unrighteousness. Unrighteousness because they don't want to give glory to God. They're not thankful to God. They have a knowledge of God and yet they refuse to honor Him or give Him thanksgiving. Now, every day presents them an opportunity to to give glory to Him. But they refuse to do it in their sin. What makes it even worse is, it's not just that they don't give God glory. That's bad enough. But they choose to give that glory to created things. God is holy. He is glorious. He is the creator of everything that exists. And yet they say, we're not going to give Him glory. We're going to give a created item glory. We're going to exchange the glory of God for created things. Paul says creeping things, animals, sometimes idols. The Old Testament is full of the complaint of the prophets that they have taken created and carved images and made them into gods. Given them glory, given them worship. My, front, my friends, this is an affront to a holy and righteous God. This is an affront to a holy and righteous God. Like any rebel in this case, judgment is just and deserved. Now, this is a modern problem. I really believe that. The problem with hell as a doctrine is a modern problem. You don't see our forefathers having much trouble with this doctrine. You don't see a lack of preaching about it in the days of the Puritans or Reformers. Why do we have a problem with it now? Well, I think there are many reasons why we have a problem with it now. Uh, but, but one of them is we don't have an evident picture in our society of what it would mean to rebel against a rightful king. Think about in the days of the Puritans. Or how about this, in the days of the Reformers. What would it have meant for you to be a citizen and say, you know what, I refuse to give King Charles glory. I refuse to recognize him as king. I refuse to recognize King Henry VIII as king of England. I deny him that, sta- that status, and I'm going to give myself that status and glory. I am now the king of England. What do you think would have been your end? Not even much time in a prison cell, would it? If you made it back to London for trial, if you weren't struck down in your home by his soldiers, you'd have been taken to London, and your head would have been detached from your body very quickly. And nobody would have thought it unjust. Nobody would have had any question about it because they would have said, of course, you're not the king. He is. Now I know what people say today. They say, well, God is not like sinful human beings. To which I say, amen. God is far more worthy of glory and honor than King Henry or King Charles. So your crime in denying Him glory is exponentially worse and more worthy of judgment. Any person would recognize if they understood the glory of God, the rightness of condemnation for those who refuse to glory in Him or give Him glory. It's the purpose of our creation. Maybe remember back to our first catechism, week one. What is the chief end of man? That's asking, what is our purpose? What is our reason for being created? To give Him glory. That's right, Brother Anthony. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So we deny our very purpose. We deny glory to the one who is worthy of all glory. And again, my friends, this is an attack on our own being created in his image. Now you can just stack a whole list of these things today. Gay marriage is an attack on uh, his good creation. Transgenderism on the first point of his creation. That he created them male and female. Everything we're about today is an attack on God's created order, majesty, righteousness, and kingship. And he says it's not going to stand forever. It is not going to stand forever. God is infinitely glorious and therefore is worthy of worship. And we should be a people of worship. And if we're not, my friends, the Bible is telling us what the just end of that is. And so that brings us to the final point. Everlasting destruction. Everlasting destruction. My friends, it's not soft-pedaled to us, is it? It is not soft-pedaled in the Scriptures what the end of all those outside of Christ is. Everlasting destruction. Paul says the verdict on all such rebels is that they shall be punished. He says it right there. They shall be punished. That word decay actually means a judicial verdict. A judicial verdict. God, as the righteous judge, levies a verdict of guilty on all those who do not stand in Christ. All those who do not stand in Christ. And they will be punished, Paul says, with everlasting destruction. Now, as the uh, doctrine of hell is assaulted today, this is a chief point. They point to wording like this and they say, well, he says everlasting destruction. So what this really means is annihilation, right? Right? As soon as the wicked die, they are annihilated and no more of anything for them. They just go out of existence. My friends, uh, that isn't what the scriptures say at all, is it? You've got to do some real twisting and ignoring of scriptures to find that. The Bible tells us over and over about endless outer darknesses, endless fires, endless gnashing of teeth, endless sorrowing, endless lamenting, endless worms that never die. Endless. Endless. When it talks about everlasting destruction, it's the opposite of endless life. right? An ongoing process of living, living in His presence forevermore. This is being put in a place away from God's presence forever. A place of destruction and lament and anguish. My friends, if that bothers you, then it should. It should. That's the point of it. We've spoken many times about A.W. Pink years ago talking about how the sacrificial system bothers so many people to hear about it. Oh, slaughtering animals. That was the point to make you recognize the cost of sin before a holy and righteous God. That animal's blood had to be shed in place of your own, in place of judgment falling upon you. In the same way as we read about uh, this doctrine of hell and judgment, it ought to make us uncomfortable. Because we don't want to be there. We don't want to be under that judgment. When I read Paul talk about the eternal rest for the righteous in Christ, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to be. So this should frighten us. Paul says that the place in which you removed from the presence of God. Do you realize every good thing we have is due to God? If you remove the presence, the gifts, and the glory of God out of this world, it would quickly collapse into chaos, destruction, anguish, and suffering. It's a good picture of hell. Only infinitely worse. There's no hope there. Even in a world that is collapsing and falling apart, you could say, there's an end coming of glory for the people of God. There is no hope in hell for you. No hope. There is this judgment and then the results are eternal. That is meant to wake us up. In other words, we're removed and barred from His glory and His light. C.S. Lewis, I believe, trying to explain the justness of such a terrible end, said the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Now what he's trying to tell you is, I think, trying to find some way to say that these are people who never wanted to be in the presence of God, never loved God, never gave Him glory. These are people who were rebels against Him in their own sinfulness in their own uh, rebellion against God. My friends, I'm amazed even when I read Revelation as God is revealed, right? And His judgment is revealed. People don't say repent, do they? They they go into the caves and say, let the caves fall upon me that I might not see His face. I think that's what C.S. Lewis is trying to get at is that these are people who do not want God, people who are at enmity against Him. So my friends, that should not be an end that we want for ourselves or for anybody we care about. And that's the terrible truth that drives our commandment to go and tell. To go and tell others while there is time. Tell your family and your friends. Tell the rioters of Thessalonica, the people who are your persecutors. How do you show them love? You tell them. may not end well for you to tell them, but you tell them. If you show them kindness and they return it with violence... Paul says some things about that, doesn't he, in Romans about heaping coals on the heads of others? What he's telling you is God's judgment is sure. God's judgment is sure, and in the end, God's people shall be vindicated and his enemies judged. Tell the self described enemies of God that there is a day of judgment. And my friends, I tried to make this point last week. Many of the enemies of God do not hide that they're enemies of God, they will tell you, I hate Christians. I hate Christ. I hate His church. I hate the Bible. Don't bring that stuff up. What Paul is saying is they're just telling you what camp they're in. My friends, we must recognize Paul says that this is a reality. Repent while there's time. Turn to Christ. Stand in His righteousness. For once that day of revelation and judgment comes, it's too late. I want to close once more by reiterating what Paul is saying in this text. Those who are in danger of the flames of hell are the ones who oppose God's glory, oppose God, oppose His people, oppose His truth, oppose His church. And Paul says all of this in the current moment is a token of revelation. A token of revelation. That we would know where we stand. That we would know what side we're on. That it must be revealed even in the present moment. Paul says uh, to the Corinthian church that there are divisions among you and this must be that the approved side might be revealed. In the same way, there must be these moments of sides taken that the reality and revelation is made clear even now as an evident token of a future reality. He was speaking to a people who live in an age of riots and rebellion. And my friends, if you turn on the TV, you see we live in an age of riots and rebellion. We live in an age of rebellion against every form of government God has given us. The reality is he gave us a government of family and it's being rebelled against. He gave us a government in civil government that's being rebelled against. He's given us a government in the churches that is being rebelled against. Paul says this is not a coincidence, but the outworking of unrighteousness in our society of people who hate God. I mean, at least many of them will tell you that they hate God. Many of them will tell you. So my friends, we need to recognize that we are living in an age where we're seeing many of the same things. We have videos, by the way, just from the last few months of street preachers being targeted, being assaulted to unbelievable lengths, I mean, put in hospitals. We have churches being burnt, which we talked about that last week. We have Bibles being burnt. I mean, it's not a mystery. It's not hidden from your eyes, the age in which you live. People who are assaulted for praying in public. In fact, I don't know the details, but I think the guy in Portland that was murdered uh, was there some kind of prayer with a prayer group of some kind. I'm not sure, but I believe he was. Is that right, Anthony? I thought it was. I thought I heard something like that. He was there with a the prayer group, and they just walked up and shot him and killed him. So, my friends, we see this. And we're seeing an age in which people don't think there's any accountability for anything. People are burning down our cities with impunity. The district attorneys refuse to hold them accountable for it. No wonder people think there's no judgment eschatologically either. God's judgment hasn't fallen. Why would we ever expect that it? it will? Isn't it amazing, though, there's no sparing of expense and manpower or dollars to take churches to court? Isn't it amazing? I mean, we can't even round up enough police officers to arrest somebody, assaulting somebody on the street in front of them, but we can sue churches. We can find churches. Maybe you saw this last week. Grace Community Church lost a court battle. So they were barred from meeting. They're going to meet anyway. It's also interesting to me that the city of Los Angeles barred them from using public parking lots. They require, for the number of people they have, three, gov- three local parking lots that are owned by the city. The city told them they're not allowed to use them anymore. Now, is that reasonable or is that vindictive? This isn't, by the way... Something that's like just during the pandemic, they've said you're not allowed to use them again in the future. Even once the pandemic is end ended, or the t- cars will be towed, people will be fined. My friends, the masks are coming off. The masks are coming off. And as the people of God, we need to recognize it. We need to recognize it. When you see people who are in opposition to the church, and I would say if you have the argument, we're going to allow strip clubs to remain open, We're going to allow abortion clinics to remain open, but churches are not allowed to meet indoors. You're kind of revealing where you stand. That's my opinion. You're revealing where you stand. And Paul says, when somebody reveals it, take them seriously. Believe them. Believe where they're telling you they stand, in opposition to the church of Jesus Christ. So, my friends, we need to be praying that there's a lot of people repenting while there's still time. Maybe that's people in our own lives. Maybe that's friends. Maybe that's neighbors. Maybe that's co-workers. Maybe it's government officials. Paul says to pray for leaders that they would have wisdom, right? Maybe pray was, Paul was praying for leaders to come to know Christ. My friends, we need to be also. We need to be also. But we need to be a people who don't sugarcoat what the Bible says. Where the Bible stands, I'm not going to be embarrassed to stand. What the Bible teaches... I'm going to stand on and believe. God says that the people who are outside of Christ have a day of judgment coming and that ought to motivate us to tell other people about Jesus. Well, it ought to. It ought to. While there's time. Amen.